feet, boy. I mean now. Got a name, boy? Virgil Tips. Virgil. Where you come from? There ain't no chance this time tomorrow. I could have had you shot. Skulls caved in. You aren't taking me anywhere. You dig? You go get yourself killed. I'm a police officer. Look, they pay you $162.39 a week just to look at bodies. Why can't you look at this one? Why can't you look at it for yourself? I do not want that Negro officer taken off this case. But don't you push me, boy! They call me Mr. Tips. Ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ticklish Business. I'm Kristen, joined, as always, by Emily. Emily, how are you? I am so good. I'm so excited to talk about this movie, as usual. Samantha is on hiatus because she is going to be getting married. Yay! We're giving her a much-needed break to do some wedding planning, but she is here in spirit. Thankfully, we have a special guest with us today to talk about 1967's In the Heat of the Night. We are joined by the lovely and amazing Carla Renata. Carla, how are you? I am great, Miss Kristen. Thank you for having me. Thank you for wanting to talk about Sidney Poitier with us. But before we talk about In the Heat of the Night, we'd like to briefly remind everyone that if you haven't checked out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz, you should. We do additional bonus pods, including doubled features, looking at remakes, based on a true podcast, looking at biopics and true crime. We did an episode recently on the Errol Flynn biopic, The Last of Robin Hood. If you ever wanted to see a creepy movie about Kevin Klein and a teenage girl played by Dakota Fanning, that's a movie that you should maybe have questions about, but we did talk about it. Emily and I are also talking about maybe doing a special classic film literary bonanza thing. Stay tuned for that. We also give out care packages of movies, gifts, tote bags, and let you guest on an episode. That's at patreon.com slash ticklish biz. And don't forget that my book, But Have You Read the Book? 52 Literary Gems That Inspired Our Favorite Movies is out now. You can order that wherever you get books. Emily, you also have another book coming out. Do you want to throw that out there for the listeners? Thank you. Yeah, I have the third of the Viviana Valentine Girl Friday Mystery Series is coming out in November. You can pre-order it now and pre-orders help book writers so much. If you'd liked all the noir talk we've had with Eddie in the past couple of weeks, Hopefully, this might wet your whistle as well. So the first two books, Viviana Valentine Gets Her Man, Viviana Valentine Goes Up the River, are out now. And also, we have our Redbubble store with has some fabulous art that you can get on all manner of objects designed by Samantha Ellis and Terrence Hills. We have our popular Makoko mugs, our Myrna Loy, Welcome to the Loy Side, May the 4th items, all sorts of things. You can find that at ticklishbiz.redbubble.com. Now, let's talk about Sidney Poitier and In the Heat of the Night. We've talked a lot about Sidney Poitier on this podcast. We have not talked about probably one of his most famous movies. We were asking a question on social media about what is the Barbenheimer equivalent of classic filmdom. I'll mention some of the responses we got towards the end, but I had a thought that in this year alone, 1967, Sidney Poitier did this film, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and To Sir With Love. I don't know, guys. That might be the Barbenheimer just with one person of classic film. His entire resume is phenomenal. But to put out three movies with that much impact 
in one year. I just can't imagine the kind of emotional toll that would take on an actor. It's not an emotional toll because he was banking them check, check, checks. So there's that. But what it was is that you have to remember, this is 1967. And Sidney Poitier was a Black actor in the 60s in the midst of the civil rights movement. For So for a Black actor to have that many gigs in one year and feature films at that, that was a milestone. No one up until that point had ever, ever, ever done that. To watch this movie, and we'll talk about Sidney Poitier's persona because it's, there's a lot of nuance and there's a lot of conflict. People tend to feel a certain way about Sidney Poitier then than they do now. Now he's considered a, a huge icon, barrier breaker, revolutionary. But to read stuff from the time period, stuff like James Baldwin, there's a lot of conflict about whether Poitier was appealing to specifically white audiences. And I think watching this movie, there are little things that I can't wait to get into that make me feel like he was aware of that and is trying to break down those stereotypes of what he could do and what he was doing as an actor. Before we get into the weeds, I want to throw out the plot briefly. This is directed by Norman Jewison with a screenplay by the fabulously named Sterling Siliphant based on a novel by John Ball. Sidney Poitier plays Detective Virgil Tibbs. He is a guy just going to visit his mother in Sparta, Mississippi, ends up being dragged into a murder case, first as a suspect, and then once they realize that he is the top homicide expert in Philadelphia, the police chief, Bill Gillespie, played by Rod Steiger, forces him to help them because they don't know what the hell they are doing. Poitier gets into all manner of, I don't want to say shenanigans because it's not a comedy, but he gets embroiled in a lot of different things that have to do with this small town and what's going on there, as well as just racism of 1967 being in the South. Ben Mankiewicz, I watched his intro because this was just recently on TCM, but he talked about something that I noticed right off the bat. I've seen this movie several times. I never remember who the killer actually is. Never remember. Because I don't think that that is the point of this movie. The murder is a MacGuffin. It is completely ancillary in the grand scheme of things. It sets things in motion, but this is really about Poitier and Steiger's characters navigating the South, one navigating the South as a white man, another person navigating the South as a black man, how this murder really just shows the ugly heart of humanity at that time. Carla, I want to start with you. What do you think of this movie as a murder mystery, you know, a crime thriller? And what do you think of it as a movie? Do you think the two meet? They meet, but not as deeply as they probably could have because of the time that we were dealing with, right? When I think about In the Heat of the Night, I remember going to the TCM Festival where this was the opening night premiere film one year. Everyone was there. Mr. Poitier himself was there and they, him and Lee Grant and some of the producers sat on stage and they discussed the film and what it was like. But when I think about this film, I also think about a soldier's play. And in the same situation in a soldier's play, how that particular soldier was brought in specifically to work on that case, which is not the case here, and how there was that back and forth with him and that white officer in that play and in that movie. And so when I look at In the Heat of the Night, my modern mind goes to a soldier's play. Having said that, the thing that is so interesting about In the Heat of the Night from a murder mystery standpoint is that 
You know that scene where they go into the morgue and at first they pull the sheet back a little bit from the chest up. And then Sidney Poitier walks up to that table and snatches that whole sheet off and just throws it at the guy. It seems little, but that was a passive aggressive way of saying, you want me to be in charge? Here, I'm in charge. And then he he whips the face back and forth. And you're like, ooh, he means business. He's like, okay, I'm from Philly and I'm about to show y'all how it's done. And that moment sets up everything else that we see in regards to that murder mystery being played out. It's fascinating that they pull it down almost like in a respectful manner. And he's a cop. He's a homicide expert. He's like, the dude's dead. There's no respect. You guys want to solve this. You can't be afraid of things. And that's what I really appreciate. And as somebody who's seen this movie more than once, I was able to really notice the small things about his performance. Like in that morgue scene, the way he's This is a white man's dead body, but he's handling his hands. He's taking off his shoes and his socks. He's asking for tools that are needed to perform a post-mortem exam. And you can just see the look on everybody's faces where they're like, this has never happened before. Not somebody that knows their job, but a black man handling the body of a white man and in a position of authority. That's what I really think the script and Norman Jewison's direction does really skillfully. And it's something that I critique a lot in modern movies today, the concept of colorblind casting. I always say that you can't really do colorblind casting and ignore how people would treat other people dependent on race. In this instance, that is how this movie always goes. The audience is never meant to forget that Sidney Poitier is a Black man. Even like the Rod Steiger sequences in this, And I want to talk about Rod Steiger in a bit because I feel that the movie doesn't let him off the hook as a white racist, but it doesn't really know how to parse that. Do we like him? Do we not like him? How does that work out? I love that every scene of this movie, Virgil has been through these things before. The first scene we meet him in in the train station, the cop throws him up against the wall and you can just see the cameras on Poitier's face. And he's like, this happens all the time. I know what to do. I know the moves from there. Every sequence that we see, the script is saying he would be treated differently regardless of his credentials. It's wrong and it's inappropriate, but this is the world. It really is that slice of life. Emily, I'm assuming you haven't seen this because I know you tend to come into most Mm -hmm. of our episodes having not. What did you think of this? As someone who now writes mystery novels and murder mystery novels, I can tell you that from the very get-go, I knew who the person was not to be the jerk who comes in and says, well, I could tell from the first scene. Unfortunately, there's no reason for that character to exist unless they are the person who is going (laughs) to end up being the person who murders someone. So unfortunately, I'm the jerk who figured it out really, really quickly. That being said... I love the way that this movie, I'm so glad you brought up the scene with the dead body. It is so focused on bodies and prison bodies and color of people's skin. And the fact that so much of the mystery hinges on white womanhood being victimized and being stood up for in this film and her body and her display of her body and where bodies are supposed to be in proximity to people of other color of that body. when. He goes to the diner in order to investigate someone, and all of a sudden, there's a black man in an entirely white space, and the diner owner, the diner server says, I'm not serving him. 
you're supposed to understand how that plays in a post-segregation society, but also the existence of a Black man in a white space. And it's just such an interesting way that they play with physicality and body presentation in this movie that I was just so gripped by it. And that's what I was really paying attention to of just how the existence of a Black man in this world created just the ripple effect of people reacting to his physical presence in a way that I thought was really, really brilliant. I love Norma Jewison's movies. My favorite movie is actually Moonstruck. And I think he is so good at heightening the emotional tension of every single scene without making people hysterical in a way that a lot of other directors can't get that heightened performance, but it's a realistic tension in every single scene. And I just loved this movie so much, even from a murder mystery thriller perspective. They were playing with things that you don't see as much in more police procedural detective things. Jewison is an interesting director for this. His classic output is often ignored. People assume that he just started with this and then went on to make all sorts of other things. But he did a lot of television in the early 60s. And then he did a lot of romantic comedies, 40 Pounds of Trouble, The Thrill of It All, which is my favorite Doris Day movie, Send Me No Flowers. And then in 65, he transitioned into more drama with The Cincinnati Kid, which is a really good Anne Margaret movie. I know it's a Steve McQueen film, but I like Anne Margaret more. The year after, he did Thomas Crown Affair, which, again, really great. And then he did some musicals. He did Fiddler on the Roof and Jesus Christ Superstar. And then he did action. So he really did every genre from the looks of it. All of these movies have their fans. Most people forget that he started out as a studio director and then transitioned to this. The way that the camera looks at things, which is this Haskell Wexler cinematography, which, of course, it should be fantastic. The way that it captures the settings and these different locations. This is clearly a small town that has no resources in it. The audience goes on a journey, I think, watching this movie because you understand that this is a town that is breeding ignorance because they have nothing. There's a book, the name of it escapes me, but it's about the history of the term white trash. And it's very fascinating about how it looks at poor white people and how racism was fostered as, well, this is why you guys are poor white trash compared to people of color. It's a very fascinating book. If I remember the name, I'll put it in the show notes. But watching this, I really did notice for a split second, you're like, well, look at these people. They have nothing. Their big to-do is Warren Oates driving down the street to see the girl naked. Woohoo! That's it's a really great Saturday night. And so you do start to feel a little bit of empathy for them. But at the same time, I am constantly reminding, no, this is an excuse. This is exactly why this is a breeding ground for the things being the way that they are. Emily, you brought up the question of the use of bodies in this movie. It's amazing that this has such a big cast. Lee Grant is in here, William Schaller, a lot of names that we now know from extensive film careers, and they have really minor roles. But I love Lee Grant in this movie because she shows up as the wife of the murdered man. It could easily be this hysterical woman part. My husband's dead. Find out what's going on. But she is the one that says, you can't let Tibbs go off. He's the only person that knows what to do. You're going to keep him. And it was a really interesting exploration of how 
white feminism becomes you get both sides of it, right? How it's weaponized. In her instance, Lee Grant's character is the one that uses her power to keep him on this case against his will. It's a gray area. But then you have the young girl at the end of the movie that is also in the middle of the murder plot who is using her white feminism to essentially play herself as a victim and crafts this whole murder drama, which I thought was really unique. For 1967, white feminism, white privilege, we're not talking about those things in 1967. We're talking about them now. And I hate that this movie is still incredibly timely, but it is. It is timely. And just to flip back to something we were talking about earlier, when we were talking about Black people and white people in 1967 and the angst and the tension that was happening during that time, Sidney Poitier had actually insisted that the film be shot in Illinois because they were him and Harry Balafonte were in Mississippi and they had a run in with the KKK. And so he was like, I am not <laughs> shooting this film in the South. He had enough presence of mind to know that even though this is a movie and there will be some people that will understand that this is a movie. In the South, in the 60s, they didn't care if you were black, you were black. And that's all that mattered to them. A black person, that, as far as they were concerned, didn't have any rights. So the fact that you have to picture the fact that Sidney Poitier actually slept with a gun underneath his pillow at night because he feared for his safety. And this was in Sparta, Illinois. Being from Missouri, I know where Sparta, Illinois is. It's not cute. It's not cute now. <laughs> so I can't imagine how it was in 1967. And Kristen, when you were saying that you had empathy for the white folks, I ain't never looked at a film like that and had empathy for no white person. And this is why, because... And it's so funny that even though this film happened in 1967, we're still dealing with the same mess right now. So it's not that different than now. And I don't give them a pass because, and I know I'm going to catch hell for this, Kristen, and I'm so sorry, but somebody got to say it. There are certain sections of white society that feel privileged in every sense of what that word means. And they felt it even more so in 1967. They were like, if you are not white, you do not have the right to have this kind of job and make this kind of money and have this kind of title. We don't care where you came from. But down here, boy, this is how it is. It's why the Rod Steiger character frustrates me so much. And if I say frustrates because he's the one that got the Oscar nomination. I'm going to gripe about that this entire episode because the fact that Sidney Poitier was not even nominated for an Academy Award and this movie won Best Picture but he was not even nominated I do. Trivia says that the reason why he didn't get an award nomination for this was because the votes were split across three movies and not for any other political reason couldn't possibly be <laughs> and I just did my traditional cackle and was like yeah sure sure IMDB guy Oh, we're going to talk about the Oscars at some point because, yeah, that's just lies and slander. Can't. But the Rob Steiger character is that character where you are constantly going back and forth. And it's where I think the movie is so smart in how it is discussing what we now know as white privilege. He says to Virgil when he asks where he's from and Virgil says he's from Philadelphia and he's like, Mississippi. He's like, no, Pennsylvania. And that distinction 
to an audience in 1967 is all you need to know that he is from the North. He is from a major metropolitan area. There's class, there's race, there's all these different things that come in. But Gillespie character is clearly intimidated by that. He's making more money than him, he says at a certain point. But also the fact that, yes, he is a educated black man who is thriving in the job that this guy has been working at his entire life. I thought that was a really great way into this back and forth relationship that they have. But I never forget that Gillespie is part of the problem. Calls him like officer. And the way Steiger says it, he hates saying it. He doesn't want to say it. He would rather probably use the word boy. He doesn't want to give this guy any ounce of respect. So for every sequence where I'm assuming a white person might be like, oh, well, maybe this guy's changing. The movie says no. This guy's never changing. He is exactly who he is. When Virgil is set upon by a group of white guys, they're going to kill him. Gillespie shows up and he's like, oh, you guys go home. But he does punch them. You could have arrested, could have done that. The movie never lets you forget that this guy is part of the system. He doesn't have a come to Jesus moment where he renounces being racist. But at the same time, I was frustrated that the movie wants you to like him in spite of things. I didn't like the character, but I feel like the movie doesn't really know. Film tends to be in a binary, good and bad. The movie tries to look at the nuances of him as a white racist working with a black man, but it doesn't really know how to end that dynamic. It does make sense. It also opens the door for the TV series that happens later on. I don't know if during that time they had even thought about a TV series, but the film was so incredibly popular because Sidney Poitier, as we all have pointed out, had three films in the same year. He was so incredibly popular that people were like, ooh, how can we capitalize upon this some more? Ooh, let's do this TV series with Carol O'Connor and Howard Rollins. Let's do that and see how far we can go. And the TV series ran for a really long time. But to your point, Kristen, I don't think the movie cares whether or not we like him. What the movie cares about, from my perspective, is the dynamic between these two men and how there's this tug of war that happens the whole time and this lack of disrespect that happens on one side the whole time. And by the time we get to the end of the movie, He never really says that he respects Tibbs, but you get the gist in the feeling that after all of this, he respects this Black man, but he just can't bring himself to verbally say it. The movie does play with some really intense and complex themes that don't have an answer. There's that scene where they go to Endicott's place, his cotton plantation, and there's that brilliant scene of the cotton fields and it's Tibbs and Gillespie driving. And Gillespie says, that's not for you, is it, Virgil? The movie does say Virgil living in the North, maybe that's not the life that he was given. There also feels like a class distinction when he goes into the greenhouse and Endicott has a Black man as his butler. There is this level of classism between Tibbs and this butler. That Tibbs is a man that has a job that is not about serving other people. It is about, you know, serving others as well as himself, being an individual. We're going to talk about the slap. Before we got the slap that we got at the Oscars, we got this slap. 
But I did appreciate that the movie also says, don't forget that Virgil is also in a privileged position in his life, in his class, in his economic background, in his education. That almost does feel like it connects to Poitiers' persona as a whole. I mentioned earlier that James Baldwin wrote extensively about Poitiers. Many people thought that Poitiers was an actor that appealed only to white audiences. He often played doctors or respected professions. He was very non-threatening in something like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, that he was an actor that appealed to the fence sitters or people that were already perceived as liberal, that he was not catering to Black audiences, which is a claim that a lot of Black actors, Whitney Houston, they all get asked, what audience are you appealing to? And I feel like that sequence with the cotton plantation is Poitiers' attempt to say, I acknowledge that I am in a different educational background. I speak differently. I, like, I think he acknowledges it. That scene without drawing attention to it does that. This is the thing when it comes to Black artists and that question of what audience are you appealing to? Nobody ever asked that of a Latino actor. Nobody ever asked that of an Asian actor. Nobody asked that of a white actor. Nobody asked that of any other actor but a Black actor. And the reality of the situation is, with Whitney Houston, she didn't write her songs. Other people wrote her songs. And other people were producing her. She wasn't producing herself. So having said that, the material that she was given had crossover appeal at some point. And in R&B music, because I worked as a publicist in the music industry for 20 years, the goal always was to have your artists cross over. Because if your artists could cross over, your artists could make more money. Your artists could sell out stadiums. With Black actors, it's the same ideology. If you think about it, there are certain films that are made specifically for the Black audience. And there are films that are made that are just films. But when there are films that are made that are just films, then there's always that question of they make a bunch of movies to appeal to white people. They making a movie. Ain't nobody sitting back going, "Ooh, is this black actor going to appeal to white people or black people when we release this? Ain't nobody thinking about that when they wrote the script. Nobody thought about that when they cast the actors in the part. Nobody thought that when they produced the movie. That always makes me so mad when I hear that because it's just ridiculous. Nobody is thinking that. And the people that are thinking that and the people that are saying that are the ones that are making the distinction and making it a big deal. It's not a big deal. People are out there making art. They're not trying to figure out what side of the fence they play into. They just want to make art and get paid, pay their mortgage, take care of their families. Ooh, that makes me so mad. The thing with the butler, ooh, I love this moment so much, is after that slap happens, and that man gets ready to go out that door and that butler stands in front of that door like, oh, no, you're not. He don't say one word, but he stands in front of that door like you're going to have to go through me to get to him. Sorry. The slap in this sequence when Virgil slaps Endicott, who a racist, and it's so satisfying to watch because just in 2023, we've experienced so much as a culture with regards to how America treats people of color. I'm sure in 1967, that slap meant something different to me watching it in 2023. But watching in 2023, it's still just as cathartic because you've been watching this character go through so much. He's been degraded. He's been disrespected. He's gone through the ringer. He's been accused of murder. 
Cindy Poitier has got to go through the whole movie in the same suit, practically. He goes through it. And when this guy finally decides to disrespect him, the white guy slaps him. Quate slaps him back. It's a hero moment. It's probably one of the great hero moments of cinema, in my opinion, because not only does the character deserve it, but you just need Poitier to be able to have a win on his terms. The butler just in the background, that is a great reaction shot of him just being like, what has just happened? The power dynamic has changed, not only between Endicott and Tibbs, but between Endicott and his butler. They are forever changed at this point. And when he does that standing in front of the door, it's like, oh, the power dynamic has forever changed. Even more interesting is Gillespie's response when the guy says, you saw what he did. He's like, I saw it. There's a question mark at the end of that. Not even he believes that he has seen what he's seen. And the guy says, what are you going to do about it? And he's like, I don't know. It's not even a rush to response. It is just outright confusion on the role of these white characters because they have never assumed that this is going to be a thing. In 2023, it plays like this really great raw moment. But in reading in 1967, audiences were really confused by that. They had never seen a black man cathartically have this upper hand. And they said in the South, audiences were really upset. They're the South, of course. They're going to say they're upset. There was a lot of discourse about this slap, about what it meant in 1967. And then considering the following year would be the outbreak of all these racial tensions, and it would be one of the most violent years for the civil rights movement. I can only believe that unintentionally it's capturing this bubbling anger and frustration that would boil out a year later. Have you joined Ticklish Biz's Patreon? You should, just like Allie Moore, Amy Hart, Andrew Hopp, Christine Meyer, Danny, David Floyd, Donna Hill, Jacob Haller, Krista Painter, Mick F, and Melanie. Listen to episodes 48 hours early, receive exclusive membership items, and even guest on an episode. You also get access to bonus series like Based on a True Podcast, Double Features, and special limited-time series like Being Elvis and Six Weeks with the Thin Man. It's all at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. Back to the show. This movie has a lot of Northern apologia. We can tell from the wife, this is Colbert, she ensures that Virgil Tibbs stays on this case because she can recognize that he's the most capable person. But she knows fully well that she is keeping him in a dangerous place and she does not care. She does not care one bit that Virgil Tibbs is now being put into a position of power in a place where a Black man with power is going to reap violent results. She doesn't care. What she wants is someone to find out who killed her husband, and she's doing it out of an entirely selfish thing. And then on top of that, the movie acknowledges fully that while Virgil Tibbs had to slap this man back, he knows immediately that this is just going to amp up the violence that is put on him. And I don't think he regrets it, but he also knows that his already precarious position only going to get worse. And he wants this done as quickly as possible before he gets cornered and murdered by people in this incredibly racist town. And when he sees that, Gillespie just says, I don't know what I'm going to do about that. That is also a message to him that says, I don't know if I'm going to protect you from any of these people in any way, shape or form. Virgil Tibbs knows throughout the 
this entire slap scene that he did what he had to do, but he is in so much danger right now in a way that he's probably never experienced before. Because also putting him as a cop from Philadelphia is a very specific thing because Philadelphia is the most Black populous city in the North. It's not like they made him from Boston or New York City or Providence. They put him in Philadelphia. So he is also specifically from a place that is saying something about him and where Black people are cordoned off in the Northern United States. So even though we have Northern apologia in this movie through and through, they're also saying very specific things about how the North treats Black people as well. That slap was improvised. That was not scripted. That was improvised. That was not a scripted it. thing. I love it. It was improvised. And then Norman Jewison and Sidney Poitier had to have a conversation about how they were going to address it. Because when Sidney Poitier read the script, he was like, a Black man would not stand there, regardless of where he was from, and take that. He would not. And I'm not. I'm not going to stand there and let that man slap me. And they had a conversation about it. They shot that twice. They shot that scene twice with that slap. Two times. But Sidney Poitier was like, oh, no, sir. Not today. It's unfortunate that when the film was released, and this brings us back to our previous conversation when we started to get into the Oscars, not only were the votes split, but folk felt some kind of way about the fact that Sidney Poitier slapped this white man on screen. It was a passive aggressive move to get back at him to go, oh, you think you're going to get away with slapping a white man on screen in 1967? We don't care that you got three movies out. This is what's going to go down. We're going to nominate Rod Steiger and we ain't going to give you nothing. We don't care about the conversation that you and Norman Jewison had. We don't care about how you feel as a black man in 1967 and whether or not you felt like that was right in a script. And we all know that that was in a movie. Guess what's not going to go down in 1967? Are you saying that the Oscars are racist, Carla? At that I time, mean, yes, I am. I would and say I'm going to catch I hell mean, for that, too. Post Green Book, we're still having those discussions about the Oscars and race. What I noticed, too, is that and TCM showed in the heat of the night as part of their theme on the South on film. In the late 60s, mid to late 60s, you got a lot of films about the South and their quote unquote confusion post Reconstruction, post Confederacy. I think of something like The Chase. The Chase is a really great movie, but it is very much a white depiction of the South. You have Robert Redford as an escaped convict who returns to his small southern town where there's a lot of tensions. It ends very tragically. Robert Redford's really great in it, but it is reconciling with this time of life that has passed and does present this whole, if a white convict can't be redeemed, then what can we do about people of color? Which, mind you, the chase, I don't think, has any significant prominent actors of color in it. You also, I think, got Hurry Sundown around the same time, which is also, again, these movies tended to focus on how white people dealt with the rising racial tensions of the late 60s living in the South. But it was always about their thought process and how they have moved on from the Civil War. How did they feel post-Reconstruction? It's not necessarily saying it from a Black experience. And that's where In the Heat of the Night does stand out because 
it is not saying there's any confusion about the South. The South is still racist. A man from the North, a black man from the North coming into the South is still unsafe. And that's where I say, I don't think the movie wants you to have empathy. It wants you, though, to the way the camera looks at certain things, wants you to at least maybe understand. I don't understand, but it wants it to look at this world that has been left in its wake. In contrast to some of those other films that are very much about, please feel sad for these sad white Southern races. They're changing with this world. It's almost like the way we talk about Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind, not to get too in the weeds, but Gone with the Wind opens with this big scrawl that talks about the fantasy and the magic of that time period. And I feel like in the late 60s, we got similar movies that are almost like when we talked about Eight and a Half, how Italians are talking about post-World War II. America had a really hard time trying to figure out how the South felt about post-Reconstruction, especially in the mid-60s. So they have to call it out, but they don't really know what that is because that experience is not that interesting, really. What's interesting is a character like Virgil Tibbs going into this backward, outdated location that has no resources, no educational support, no nothing, and being like, where's the Confederacy to help y'all now? Did it work in your favor? Because it really doesn't seem like it did. That's what the movie does without being preachy about it. It doesn't say these things, but an audience watching this movie is going to be like, well, hell, all these sad movies I watched The Chase, and it's like, oh, isn't it sad that these characters don't have any options. And this movie is pretty much saying, no, this is the life they've created. This is their bed. And now they're laying in it. That was a really long tangent about a lot of different movies. I feel like I needed to throw it out there. I am a stickler for production design in films and things that go around and in and about the production. And two things I wanted to point out. Their cinematographer was a guy named Haskell Wexler. And I love the fact that he went out of his way to make sure that Sidney Poitier was lit properly. That is my biggest pet peeve when I see Black people in movies and on television when they are not lit right. It pisses me off because there's no excuse. And Sidney Poitier was a very dark-toned Black man. So Wexler was very well aware of the fact that he had to turn down the glare of the lights so that Sidney Poitier didn't look ashy. He didn't look ghostly, but I appreciated the fact that he thought enough of this actor and of his work to make sure that that man was lit properly. I really love that. I also love the fact that Quincy Jones and Ray Charles grew up together and Quincy Jones did the score, the opening song in the heat of the night. He wrote that and Ray Charles sang it. That was such a cool thing. I love the fact that this was a film that, as we have discussed, is taking place in the South. We have this man who grew up in the South in Georgia singing the title theme song written by his best friend who also grew up in the South. These three people ended up being very prominent Black men in their respective professions. We talked about Elevator to the Gallows last episode with a Miles Davis score. We get a Quincy Jones score here. Some great scores our last two episodes. I'm watching Odds Against Tomorrow right now with Harry Belafonte. I notice in a lot of Belafonte's films, Harry Belafonte was a lighter-skinned Black man. 
in Odds Against Tomorrow, there are certain scenes where the light on him is so bright. The light on him is so bright, it really washes him out. And then you watch something like him and Sidney Poitier and something like Buck and the Preacher a couple years after this movie, which that's a fantastic film. Please go watch it. The way that they're lit in that does them a great service. You're talking about lighting in this film. His first introduction to Gillespie, the way that Poitier is shot, makes him almost look darker skinned than he is. That's because the audience is seeing him from Gillespie's POV. Gillespie is looking at him as this black man who is a murderer. And as the film progresses and Poitier goes out to different locations, the way he's lit does emphasize that he is dark skinned, but it's never as dark as when he is in that first sequence. Haskell Wexler, man, he was a legend for a reason. I'm glad you brought up the production design because one thing that I was noticing when I was watching the entire movie was something that Kristen had brought up earlier, which is Sidney Poitier's suit. And every single white person in this movie is wearing these limp, wrinkled, disgusting, humid clothes. And Sidney Poitier's suit is pressed and perfect throughout the entire film, no matter how long he wears it. You can tell he's been in the town for maybe three or four days by the fact that his tie becomes slightly undone and one top button is undone. His clothing is brought up by other characters of when he's locked in a jail cell with someone. The racist, terrible person says, why are you wearing white man's clothes? And that is brought up so specifically, but the production design of making that suit as impeccable as the white tank top in Twister that never gets dirty. It is just an incredible feat of movie making magic that he always looks phenomenal and completely untouched by the disgusting town around him. After I finished watching this, I thought to myself, thank God for the EPA, because whenever I watch movies that are made in the mid-century and it's always disgusting, they're running through the Mississippi River and it's just filled with dirt and debris and things like that. And they go out of their way to point out the fact that this town, it's not just poor, it's just gross. The people don't care for it. The people who live there don't care for anything. And they're living in this horrible little town. And all of a sudden, Sidney Poitier comes in and he's gorgeous in this suit that doesn't wrinkle. I do want to shout out the scene in the jail cell. Scott Wilson is the young guy that he is talking to in that scene. This is Scott Wilson's first film. I watched Scott Wilson when he was in In Cold Blood, which came out a year or two after. And if you want to see two halves of an actor and what an actor can do, watch him play this Weasley dude in In the Heat of the Night and then watch him play a perverted, dirty killer in In Cold Blood. I want to bring up the Oscars because we have to talk about them because mistakes were made and I feel that they need to be rectified. So this movie had a huge critical response. It did boast a TV show with Carol O'Connor, which I have not watched the TV show. It was a drama that had a few quips here and there, because after all, we have Gillespie being played by Carol O'Connor. It was after all in the family, I think. We got Carol O'Connor. So people, and this is what audiences do. Your brain gets set in seeing somebody a certain way and you can't let go of it. So people were used to seeing Carol O'Connor be funny. So, of course, they had a couple of quips there for him every once in a while, and they would let Harold Rollins come back at him every once in a while. But it was considered a TV drama at the time. It was 1988, in case people are curious. The Oscars for this, it won five. It was nominated for six. 
It was nominated for special effects, editing, sound, writing, director, lead actor, and best picture. Steiger won. Poitier was not nominated. We've talked about a couple of the reasons why he was not included. My argument is this. Rod Steiger won. For the reason that Green Book won. The voters got the wrong message from the Gillespie character in the film. They are seeing a white Southern racist who begrudgingly comes to respect this Black character. That's change. That's growth. It's really not. But I feel like that's how they looked at it. It's so hard to play a racist because clearly Rod Steiger is not. And we have to honor this change in the landscape. So this is the year of Dr. Doolittle being a Best Picture nominee alongside some of these groundbreaking films, including this, as Carla mentioned, Bonnie and Clyde, Cool Hand Luke, The Dirty Doesn't. And then you have Dr. Doolittle in there. Why? Why? Because you're seeing this change. You're seeing the sea change. And I recommend reading Mark Harris's book, Pictures at a Revolution, documents this change in the late 1960s, where the studio system is all but dead. It crumbled in 65, but you're starting to see the fallout of small independent producers and production companies come to the forefront, creating really groundbreaking, revolutionary movies that attack the status quo, attack the concept of how you make films, attack the concepts of society. Dr. Doolittle is this last vestige, last example of an old Hollywood studio musical. But my thought process is, is that giving of the Oscar to Steiger is this belief that we understand things are changing. And he's like us. He's an old guard example of white authority who we see change, even though the character does not make any significant change. The movie never says that he changed. As Carla mentioned, he has this maybe begrudging level of respect, but he never vocalizes it. The white voters of the Academy, because let's be real, they were all white back then, said that's change. That's growth. Let's give him the Oscar. It is no different than Green Book getting that best picture win. My frustration is, is to give it the best picture win, to say at the end, it's the best movie of all time but it's not the best movie because of its leading man, is just always going to make me mad. Always, 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 always. To your point, I understand exactly what you're saying, but the people that were living in 1967 and that ideology that existed then, the difference between then and when Green Book came out, although the world has very slightly changed between 1967 and the year that Green Book was released, the ideology behind it hasn't really. Green Book, I feel, won the best picture that year because, first of all, we were being introduced to somebody that was a real-life breathing person that was Black that we never learned about in school. I never learned about that man in school. I never knew he existed until that movie came out. The thing that upsets me about Green Book winning the best picture is the fact that its title suggests that the film is about the Green Book. The film is not about the Green Book. It's about this pianist and what his journey was traveling from point A to point B, having to use the Green Book. That actually bothered me more than anything else. I think the Green Book probably appealed to people's humanity from the fact that this was a classical pianist who was gigging 
that was a real life breathing person and was still being persecuted in the eyes of society simply due to the color of his skin. In this day and age, people felt some kind of way. There's some people on this earth that think, wow, this is really still going on. That's really still happening now. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Some of that played into that film getting best picture. There were other pictures that year that were better. I do agree with you on that. You know how it is with the Oscars. There's so many things politically that go into place that have nothing to do with how good a film or how good a performance is or is not. It's just so interesting to me that we have a film that's nearly 40 something years apart in terms of years and nothing has really changed in society. Nothing's really changed about the way these films get nominated. Nothing changes about how these films win. Nothing changes about what performer gets an Oscar nomination or who wins and who doesn't. We could go down a whole rabbit hole with that, but I'm not going to do that today. If we looked at the best lead performance that year, the year Steiger won, the other nominees were Dustin Hoffman for The Graduate, Spencer Tracy with a posthumous nom for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Paul Newman for Cool Hand Luke, and Warren Beatty for Bonnie and Clyde. Remember, Poitier had three movies of significance out that year. His co-stars in two of them got lead performance noms, which I would argue Spencer Tracy is not the lead. Guess who's coming to dinner? And Norris Steiger, the lead of this. If we're talking about category fraud, which still happens, these are two examples. But my question to both of you is, if we wanted to put Poitier in, who would you take out? And taking out Steiger is not an option because I feel like we'd all say that. I would That's say for me. me, and I'm going to be a jerk, Spencer Tracy. I love Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. That is also a movie with a very fraught look at race. And Spencer Tracy is very good, but it's no different than the Steiger performance, in my opinion. A white character having to learn how to deal with the changing depiction of race. I'm going to be the cruel one that says, Spencer Tracy didn't need that Oscar nomination. Do not send me emails. Mine's Dustin Hoffman. I like The Graduate as a movie. I agree with you on Spencer Tracy, but I understand why he's got it for posthumously a world-shattering, conceit-shattering concept of film that happened, guess who's coming to dinner. But for me, The Graduate, I know a lot of people love it. I know it's people's favorite movie. I get that. But that is a movie about the women and not necessarily him. So you said Dustin. You said Spencer. I'm going to say Warren Beatty for Bonnie and Clyde. Okay, hear me out. To Emily's point, The Graduate is a film about the women, but it's also a coming of age story that we'd never seen before. That was the appeal with Dustin Hoffman. Spencer Tracy got that Oscar nomination for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner based on that very last monologue that he gives in that film. Yep. Because the majority of the film deals with Katherine Hepburn and her daughter and Sidney Poitier. And the very last act of that movie is where they all have those different conversations as to why this marriage is going to be hard. It's that last monologue that Spencer Tracy gives where he talks about if you love her is half as much as I loved her mother, then God bless you. And by the time he finishes that monologue, 
I don't care who you are. I don't care how cynical you are. You are in a puddle of tears by the time he finishes talking. Cool hand Luke. I love Paul Newman. And Paul Newman was a really wonderful actor, but he used to get the raw end of the stick because he was as good looking as he was. People didn't take him seriously as an actor by his own self-admission throughout the years. But Warren Beatty and Bonnie and Clyde, if I had to pick performance-wise between him or Estelle or Faye Dunaway, the person that I would have probably been the most hype on wouldn't have been him. It would have been Estelle or Faye Dunaway. That's why I said Warren Beatty. I can't argue with that. I would also say I probably might have taken away Paul Newman's win for Cool Hand Luke because I do not get the love for that movie. I think Paul Newman made far better movies that he did not get nominated for. So we're going to get so much hate from this episode. They're going to be like, the racism thing is one thing, but you say that Warren Beatty didn't deserve his Oscar nomination for Bonnie and Clyde, and you hate The Graduate, and you hate dead Spencer Tracy. I don't buy any of the excuses that have come up over the years about they would have split. We've seen multiple nominees from the same film. Yes, it does usually result in a split. So say Steiger and Poitier were both nominated for lead. Do we think the voters would have split and given it to a third? And who do we think that would have been? I would probably uh, Spencer Tracy would have gotten it, was my guess. Ditto. I think, yeah. Yeah. Can I just point out that Bea Richards was a two films that year. She was in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and <laughs> she was in In the Heat of the Night. She had a small role in The Heat of the Night, but she played Sidney Poitier's mom in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. She's no longer with us, but if we're going to talk about In the Heat of the Night and Sidney Poitier, we got to bring that up and give Miss B her flowers. She's so good in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. I recommend that movie just for her performance alone. It's a very small role, but oh, she makes a meal out of it. Sidney Poitier did win his Oscar in 1964, yes, for Lilies of the Field. He was nominated prior to that in 1959 for The Defiant Ones. 64 was the last time he was ever nominated. That was it. Never nominated again for the rest of his career until he got his honorary Oscar in 2002. And Sidney Poitier was the first African-American to win the Best Actor Oscar and the only one up until 2001 when Denzel got the Oscar for Training Day. And isn't it crazy that the night that Denzel Washington and Halle Berry won their Oscars is the same night that they gave Sidney Poitier the honorary Oscar. And the Oscars were blackity black, black, black that night. And it ain't been that black since. <laughs> it probably never will be again. But I was in my living room having a nervous breakdown because I was like, yes. <laughs> I just couldn't believe the irony of it all. And what I really loved is the fact that Sidney Poitier was still here to get that honorary Oscar. I only wish to be a fly on the wall to hear the conversations that went down that night between him and Hallie and Denzel. Before we close it out, this movie did get two sequels, 1970s They Call Me Mr. Tibbs and 1971's The Organization. I have seen one of them. I don't remember which one, but I remember it not being nearly as good. It might have been They Call Me Mr. Tibbs. It was nice to see Virgil's family, but it does not have the same power as this film. Both of those movies did do well at the box office, but they did not get nearly as much critical acclaim as this one did. And yeah, it did spawn a 1988 television show. 
with Carol O'Connor that ran for several years. I've said this before, in The Heat of the Night is one of the greats, quintessential American film that talks about the ugly side of America and has some of the best sides of America in that Sidney Poitier's performance is utterly fantastic. Lee Grant's really good. Everybody's really good. But Sidney Poitier deserved that Oscar. I'm just never going to stop harping about that. It's a movie that if you did not, and I don't know how you wouldn't have known by this point that Sidney Poitier was a star. He is a star. Everything that I've seen him in, I've seen several movies last year into this year with Poitier. And sometimes the movies aren't good, but he is always fantastic in them. If you need recommendations, I am always here to give Sidney Poitier recommends. But I love this movie. It's fantastic. Emily, what did you think about it overall? One of the first celebrities my friends and I ever saw in LA when we moved to Los Angeles all together to finish out our last year of college was my friend saw Sydney Poitier in a sushi restaurant. I remember her calling me and freaking out because she was in his presence. And I think that is something that goes to this film and his entire film canon of just what he means to people who were also not Black, just what he means to Hollywood history through and through of just what he does and what he did. I just loved this movie. It did a wonderful job of making America ugly in a way that I don't think movies now frequently do. It's a canonical film for a reason. I'm glad I got to watch it and discuss it with you. Carla, why don't you give us the last overall opinion on In the Heat of the Night? In the Heat of the Night is an iconic film for a variety of reasons, as we have discussed throughout the course of this podcast. But what I'd like to say in closing it out is that I saw To Sir With Love before I saw In the Heat of the Night. And I had never seen any man, regardless of what his race was, be as elegant and is lovingly looking in the lens, in the camera lens, as Sidney Poitier. I had a big old crush on him after I saw him in To Sir With Love. I was like, who is that? And where can I find me one like him? That's what I wanted to know. This film is iconic for all those reasons. Lee Grant, like you mentioned, Kristen. Emily, like you mentioned about him appealing to people that aren't just Black. He was an actor's actor, period. And every actor who is in the business looks to his work as some of the greatest work that they'll ever see on a silver screen. When you were saying, Kristen, about some of his films not good and some of them are good and his huge body of work, after this year, he switched and started doing comedies with Harry Belafonte. And he did a string of comedies, three of them. And I loved those movies. They weren't that great, but they were so funny. And it was so great to see Sidney Poitier be goofy. Because when you think of Sidney Poitier, you don't think goofy. But when you see a piece of the action and let's do it again, there he is being goofy and crazy and funny. And FYI, but not really, Shirley Ralph was discovered by Sidney Poitier. Imagine how his lineage has gone on to a whole different generation with her being the first African-American woman to win an Emmy in her category. I just wanted to close it out on that. Carla, thank you so much for joining us to talk about Sidney Poitier and this movie. Where can fans find and get in touch with you online? Feel free to let them know about anything you have coming up. 
Girl, you ain't said nothing but a word. So they can find me at thecurvyfilmcritic.com, which is where my written reviews are, as well as on Rotten Tomatoes. And I do a podcast every Sunday at 5 p.m. Pacific time called The Curvy Critic with Carla Rinalda. I do some freelance writing every once in a while. So you might see me in Kristen's publication, The Wrap, or a couple of other things here and there. So, you know, keep your eyes peeled. You never know what I'm doing. As I mentioned, I did ask on Twitter about Barbenheimer. What is the classic film equivalent of Barbenheimer? And we got a couple of answers. The at real Molo Hart said all of 1939. And honestly, Emily, I don't know about you, but I think that might be true. But they didn't know it was Barbenheimer level at the time, I'm guessing. If you're going by feelings being stirred up. Certainly all of 1939 was making people feel things they weren't feeling before. So I will give you the splendor and magic of The Wizard of Oz with the, oh my God, what was society doing of Gone with the Wind? That's a pretty solid compare and contrast. At Gina D'Alfonso said, this is a tough one. Maybe It's a Wonderful Life and Best Years of Our Lives. They weren't released the same weekend, but they did come out within a few weeks of each other. That's a pretty good one. At Ludwig von Drake 8 said, 1964 was full of them. There was Dr. Strangelove and Man's Favorite Sport, Dead Ringer and the Umbrellas of Cherbourg, Beckett and Mail Order Bride, Paris When It Sizzles and The Strangler, and The Moon Spinners and The Pawn Broker. I would love a double feature of The Moon Spinners and The Pawn Broker. <laughs> the Pawn Broker is also Rod Steiger. When you asked me about what film also gave me Oppenheimer vibes, one of the ones that I came up with was Failsafe. It's another Stanley Kubrick movie that came out in 1964. I was trying to look up real fast to see if anything else came out that same week. And I might have to say something on Twitter because that is one of the scariest movies I've ever seen in my life. I wonder if something light and fluffy in 1960s came out the same weekend. Probably. We should look into that. The last one we got was From at Guppy575, to draw my own conclusion, I would have to say Gone with the Wind, Snow White, and the Seven Dwarves, and Wizard of Oz. That's going to close it out from us. You can always find me on Twitter and Instagram and threads and whatever the new social media is by searching at KristenLopez88. You can find my work over at therap.com. Emily Edwards, where are you on the interwebs? I am on every single platform known to man at this point at Ms. Emily Edwards. That's M-S-M-L-E-E-M-I-L-Y, spelled the boring way, Edwards. And I'm also on my own website at MsEmilyEdwards.com. And you can find the podcast wherever you get podcasts. We're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or all the other podcast apps that are out there right now. Reviews matter, so leave us one on Apple Podcasts. Five stars should you please. You can follow us on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz, as well as on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and threads at ticklishbiz. Our Patreon helps keep the lights on at ticklishbizhq and gives us chances to do all sorts of new content like that aforementioned based on a true podcast episode about the weirdness that is the last of Robin Hood. So consider helping us at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. Me and Emily both have books out. You can order them wherever you get books. Our next episode will be coming out on August 16th. Till then.